Father, thank you that you are sovereign over us and that we can trust you with our lives, with our future, with our present, with our past. Thank you that you are faithful and we give you our attention this morning. We give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're moving into our message this morning here. We're in a series on the life of David, and we're going to look at a character this week in the story of the life of David. And I want to start out with the thought of, can you think of a time in your life or, or a situation where you saw someone who started out with like a ton of promise, like things were sailing, they were going to be really, really amazing and great, but you look down later in the story and they end up as, as, a, as a disappointment. Like maybe it was a person or a business, maybe even a, a church. And what happens between the good start and the hard ending is, is you kind of go, wow, some, there was some kind of deterioration, some kind of decay. And the question that, that we often ask and wonder is, wow, what went wrong? Between here and there, what happened? What went wrong? Um, another way maybe to think of this, has anybody ever uh, grown up in a home uh, and then years later, you go back and look at the house that you had lived in when you were younger. Anybody ever done that before? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I was thinking about doing this uh, a few years back where when we were in uh, high school, living in, uh, I was in high school, uh, we were living in Wilmer, Minnesota, and uh, mom and dad had built a, a, a new house, and, and dad added on to it. They did incredible stuff with the yard. It was beautiful. It was really a nice house. I really loved it. And then a few years later, so I mean, I'm old, so it's not like it was, you know, three or four years. It's been a couple decades, right? So I went back and, and was kind of in my head, oh, this is what it's going to look like, right? And it, <laughs> anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, there's a difference uh, over time how things just uh, even decay. Um, or think about uh, sports teams. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, the Chicago Bulls, right? They were this incredible franchise, a great dynasty in, in the history of sports, and in its day, in its day, it was awesome. Anybody know who was the cornerstone of that Chicago Bulls team? Thank you, Michael Jordan. Youngsters, be, be, pay attention. Michael Jordan this really was a good basketball player, right? Michael Jordan, anybody remember his counterpart? Pippen, there you go, Pippen and Jordan, and then Rodman was in there, and then uh, boom, they were gone, and the Bulls were kind of a shell after that. They were terrible. Um, I can't wait until that happens to the Lakers again, by the way. <laughs> I can't believe they have LeBron. This was really hard. So um, I can't wait till it happens to the Packers either. Oh, actually, it's already happening, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Skull. Skull Vikes. All right, all right. Settle down, people. All right. Um, uh, or myself, right? Okay, so I'm 48 years old. I'm having a birthday coming up in a month or so here. And Sometimes, you know, I go home and I look at my body in the mirror and go, wow, you know, in its day, uh, it's way, okay, it never actually had a day, okay, we'll just be honest here. I'm still kind of hoping someday, but you know, you, you know what I mean, right? Well, I believe all forms of this kind of deterioration, all, all of this kind of decay, of all of those forms, the saddest one is the decay, the deterioration of the human spirit, it's the change of a human heart. I mean, we think about someone who starts the race really well, and then they drift away from God, or they allow their heart to grow hard, or their life to grow sour, and now they just complain and are shriveled up shells of themselves. I remember talking to a guy named Todd Hunter. He used to lead the vineyard denomination, and then now he's, and now he's a bishop for the Anglican Church. But one time he was talking to a group of us, and he said, you know, most of the people, most of the ministers even that I've known that are well-known uh, didn't finish well. 
They just didn't finish well. And not necessarily moral failures, but just, just hardened hearts. And, and that really was a wake-up call for me. Because uh, I think to watch those kinds of downward spirals happen in the lives of people as they age and then look back at to who they once were and, and go, oh man, who might they have become if they hadn't hardened their heart? I think that's one of the saddest things of all. And David, who we've been coming to know and love in this series, David had a front row seat to watch that exact process go on in what I think was his most like, complicated or complex relationship, and it was with a man named Saul. And Saul is who we're going to talk about today. He began really well. We meet him early on in the book of 1 Samuel, and we'll look at several passages this morning, but in the early chapters, chapter 9 and 10 and so on, we read that Saul was an impressive man. It says that he stood head and shoulders above every man in several different places in the scripture, that he was just, just taller and a handsome guy. In the early days, the prophet Samuel, who was leading Israel up until then, he said about Saul, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And that's a really rare phrase to see that in scripture. It's only used a few times, and it's a high compliment. No one like him among all the people. So, so, so he was impressive, um, but he was also humble. Saul was humble. When he found out that he was going to be made king, his response was, but, but, but I'm from the smallest tribe of Israel, and, and my clan is the smallest in the tribe. Why would you honor me? In fact, when he was first anointed king, his response was to just keep faithfully working on the farm where he was at. That's the first thing he did. He just went back to the farm and kept working. He was a humble man at first. But then soon he needed to make a stand on behalf of his people. So then we find that Saul was courageous. First Samuel 11, we, we see that an enemy nation had told the descendants of, of, of a village of Israelite tribes that, that um, they were going to wipe them out. And the Israelite tribe said, no, 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 make a treaty with us. And they said, we'll make a treaty with you, but each one of you has to gouge out your right eye. Um, and then we'll make the treaty. And they must have been pretty terrified because they said, oh, well, um, give us seven days to think about it, right? Uh, they were buying themselves some time. And so some of them snuck out messengers to go to the other tribes of Israel to see if anyone would help them. Check this out, verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these things to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? When they repeated to Saul what the men of Jabesh had said, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger, which I think that's a whole study in itself. Interesting phrase, right? The Spirit of God came on him, and he burned with anger. So uh, maybe another time we'll look at that. Um, so what happens after that is Saul just rallies all the other tribes, and they come in. There's 300,000-plus uh, soldiers, and they go in, and they just decimate this, this enemy. So he was also a courageous warrior. But he was also, Saul was very gracious in his heart of hearts. I mean, that's part of what's amazing all through his life. You see it try to break through in different parts of his story, 
Um, because before the battle that I just mentioned right there, there were all these factions of Israelites who opposed him. He's the first king, he's the new king, and they were grumbling about it. But then they do that battle, right, and they win the battle, and suddenly he's got all this support as the new king, so morale goes sky high, and, and the people say to Saul, hey, where are those who were opposed to your becoming king? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. Right, so they're ready to destroy any kind of internal opposition to Saul, which was commonly done in those days in those places. But Saul says in response to that, no, no, <laughs> no one will be put to death today for this day. The Lord has rescued Israel. So right there, we just see in his story, grace, nobility in action, and the people loved it. Saul was only 30 years old. When he became king, he was tall, he was strong, he was humble, he was a warrior, he loved God. The future looked so bright. He was full of promise for what might be. And he reigned for 42 years. But the sad thing, spoiler alert here, is that, that when he died, all of that promise was wasted. It had been lost. But by the time he dies as an old man, he was tormented by depression Driven by pathological jealousy, his mind, his emotions were in ruins. He had lost the respect of the people around him. He was incapable of love or peace or joy. He was just a shell of what he had once been. And so I look at all the promise that was in him at the start. And then I look at the tragedy of his life at the end, and I wonder, how did that happen? Like, how does a life end and deteriorate so badly? Like, nobody plans it. But I think... It usually just happens one day at a time. Yes. Just one day at a time. You know, Saul didn't start out at the beginning looking to be wicked or violent. I mean, some of the characters in David's story, they're just kind of evil or rebellious toward God all the way through. Goliath is one. Nabal is one. Absalom, he looks like he's pretty much a rebel from start to end. But not Saul. Like, it was different. Uh, like, like he, he just drifted into it. Which is what troubles me when I look at this story and I think about it. And, and here we are looking at the story of Saul. We're in the middle of our series on the life of David. And so I want to spend the rest of our time thinking out loud about this. How did Saul go wrong? Because I, I think that the story of Saul is potentially the story of every one of us. Like, I do think we meet Saul in Scripture, but then I think we look in the mirror and we can meet Saul right here in our own stories. But even beyond us as individuals looking at our, our hearts and wondering about that, let me say this clearly. I think the story of Saul is a cautionary tale because it could become the story of an entire community of people, even an entire church of people, because if we were to harden our hearts, if we as a church decided to stop listening to and following Jesus, um, it's not going to go where God intends for it to go for us. See, all that beauty and potential, all the things that God has inspired our heart for, the things he's promised us even as a church, as a people, um, it's here. But I go, yeah, it was for Saul too in the beginning, right? So can we learn from his mistakes and keep from making some of those same mistakes ourselves both in our life and us as a church community? So this morning, I, I want to get real clear on what spiritual drift or what a hard heart, uh, what the decay of the human spirit looks like because I, wanna, I want us to fight it with all the strength that God gives us. 
And even as I say that, just let me pause for a second. Like, by the way, our own strength is not enough, okay? (laughs) It does take the power of God, okay? It does. But there is a role for each of us to play, and God gives us the freedom to choose him or to walk away, choose this day life or death, choose a soft heart or a hard heart. So let's look at Saul's story. And what I want to do while I have this just kind of go through the talk. I want us each to even have in the background of our own minds this kind of running conversation with God uh, and just continue from the Psalm 139 that we read during the first song during worship uh, where it says, search me, O God, know my heart, right? Let me know, God, if there's any places where this process of decay or hardness of heart is going on inside of me. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel 13 if you have a Bible. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, you can always grab one for free off the back table there. Um, So those are here for all y'all. But 1 Samuel 13, this episode we're going to look at, it's a really sad day. It's early on as Saul's reign as the first king of Israel. Israel is at war with, guess who, the Philistines, right? And um, the prophet Samuel, he's still around. And I kind of said this before, but when I think of these characters, I picture Samuel and I think about Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Anybody? Right? I can't get that out of my head. So Gandalf, I mean, Samuel gives instructions to Saul about preparing for battle. And here's kind of my paraphrase of this scene. Samuel says, Saul, listen carefully. I want you to go away to Gilgal and wait seven days. I will come and offer a sacrifice and then instruct you in what God wants. Your job, Saul, is to wait. You got it, Saul? And Saul says, Yes. Okay. What's your job, Saul? To wait. How long? Seven days. Okay, right? So the week goes by. It's the seventh day. Samuel has not come yet. Saul maybe thinks he's not going to come at all. And then things get rocky and some of the soldiers start to desert. Morale's going down quickly. Saul gets anxious. And it's often the case, I think, when, when, when... When fear gets a hold of us, or in this case, when fear got a hold of Saul, it led him to do foolish and sinful things. Anybody, by the way, relate to that, fear leading us to do foolish and sinful things? Yeah, like me? Yeah. So Saul had just one job to do. It was to wait, right? He's just supposed to trust God, but he wouldn't do it. Like, he gets anxious. He lets his fear and angst just drive him to do something that is disobedient, and he decides he's going to offer the sacrifice himself, and so he does. And then, of course, Samuel shows up right as the sacrifice is being offered by Saul. And Samuel says to him, what have you done, Saul? God asked you to do one thing. And and here, Saul makes another mistake. Instead of acknowledging his anxiety, his disobedience, instead of coming clean and repenting, he rationalizes this and says, my men were deserting. And you, you didn't show up when you said you would. And the Philistines were coming, Samuel. And I realized I had not sought the Lord's favor, and so I felt compelled to offer the sacrifice. Let's put that one up on the screen then, where it says, my men were deserting, right? So it shows here that that he just distorts the truth a little and acts like, oh, this kind of occurred to me. This would be a good idea to offer the sacrifice instead of owning up to the fact that he knew his job was to wait. And so Samuel says to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord. Now, kind of in defense of Saul a little bit, I kind of get this, right? I mean, you kind of go, well, wait a minute. It looks like a good thing to do. He offered a sacrifice. 
You could even make it sound like a good thing to do. Like, hey, 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 I wanted, I wanted to sacrifice to God. I wanted to, to offer something to do my spiritual duty. But the truth behind all of this is really that Saul wasn't trusting God at that moment. He was just trying to use God, sort of like a genie in a bottle, to make him a success in the battle. And this is a pattern that he developed through his life. Saul would just do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. Like, he'd be like, hey, listen, you guys made me king, so I'm the boss now, and so I'm going to do it my way, which is all about having pride and arrogance. Now, this didn't just happen one time. A little later, chapter 15, verse 1, he's at war with the Amalekites, and Samuel tells Saul, hey, listen, uh, Saul, here's your instructions. One command on this one, okay? The enemy, this enemy is so wicked that everything has to be destroyed, including livestock. You got it, Saul, right? And by the way, um, that sounds really crazy harsh, and I wish I had more time to go into it. But part of those kinds of Old Testament destructions, like wiping out a, a people group, part of it was those, those groups and those people w- would have so many things like child sacrifice and incest and forced sex slavery and just on down the line that they carried through their traditions as a people, that, that that's part of why some of these groups are commanded just to be wiped out. So back to that. Um, so Saul says, I'm sorry, Samuel says to Saul, God says, the enemy is so wicked, everything, including the livestock, has to be wiped out. You got it, Saul? And Saul's like, got it, okay? So what gets destroyed, Saul? Everything, right? What gets left, Saul? Nothing. Okay, okay, he's got it, right? So Saul goes on, he wins the battle, but then he opts for what I have heard referred to as um, selective obedience. Anybody have kids like this? I was a kid like that, I admit, yes, okay, yeah, mom and dad are nodding, not quite, they're trying to be nice back there, okay, good, good. Selective obedience, right, so he keeps all the choice livestock alive, right, and um, like it was his call, I'm the king, so he decides to ignore it. Once again, he doesn't obey God's direct instructions, he tries to cover it up with spiritual sounding language. So Samuel comes in, and again, he confronts Saul. It's kind of weird, like Samuel has this weird habit of showing up right when Saul is in the middle of blowing it, right? So so Samuel shows up, Saul has ignored what God said to do, and listen to Saul's response in 1 Samuel 15, it says, "When, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. It's kind of a hallelujah, amen, brother, notice my new bracelet here, WWYD, what would Yahweh do, right there, you see that there, it's good, right? The Lord bless you, Sammy, right? Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest, right? Saul's basically like, Oh, yeah, yeah, those cattle. <clears throat> the, um, uh, yeah. Oh, the soldiers, yeah. They brought those sheep and cattle to, um, to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's the ticket to sacrifice to the Lord. And he tries to make it sound good, right? It actually kind of sounds good to, to sacrifice to the Lord. But again, Saul is just using religious-sounding God talk to, to try and squirm around his refusal to obey God. And then Samuel says those stunning words that we hear all through Scripture, and maybe you've heard somewhere before but didn't know where they came from. It's right here. Samuel says, to obey 
is better than sacrifice, right? To obey what God said in the first place is better than trying to offer a sacrifice later, right? To have a, to have a heart that's just open to God and following God, that's what God wants. He don't want your stuff and your offerings and your sacrifice. He wants, he'd rather have you. Now, in this context, in that day, like, sacrificing was a part of a, of a flurry of, of visible religious activity, but today, people do it all the time as well. Like, we can, in different ways, get involved in a flurry of religious visible activity, not because we're even devoted to God, but sometimes that flurry of religious visible activity is designed even by us to convince people that we're innocent or that we're really committed to God when, in fact, maybe we're not. Like, when our hearts start to get hard, we can just go ahead and get busy with a flurry of visible religious activity. And when we do that, we act like we care about what God says or thinks when we don't. Like, maybe we just kind of, you know, get all churchy in our language, but we are just trying to distract from things in our life that we'd really rather not talk about. And when we do that, and we've all done that, what we're hiding is a hard heart. And I think that Samuel might say to me when, when I get like that, hey, Doug, <laughs> listen, it's better to obey God than it is to offer a sacrifice. So, so, so quit, you know, just put your hands down. Quit singing the song. Quit blowing religious smoke. Just obey what God says to do. Reconcile with the people God says to reconcile with. Follow what he's calling you into. Say you're sorry. Leave that thing behind instead of doing all the stuff just... Just follow Jesus, that would be good. Like, stop the charade, stop the show. Just obey what God says to do and trust him with it. But in our story here, to, to just obey and trust God and do what he said um, would take something that Saul did not have and maybe some of us struggle to have. To, to obey God when we don't understand or we think we have a better idea would take humility. See, see obeying God and what he says, it takes a spirit within me or you that says, okay, I don't understand it, but I will bow and serve and I will yield and submit to God. I will trust God even when I don't get it. Yielding and submitting, the really popular thing to do in our culture, right? Um, but it takes a humility in us to say, okay, you are God, I am not. You are the Lord, I'm not. But sometimes it just feels easier to skip all of that kind of stuff and offer a sacrifice after we blow it, right? Thinking, oh, well, I'll just do what I want to do, and then I'm going to get off the hook with God. He'll ignore my disobedience if I just plan ahead like, I mean, come on. Yeah, I'm going to deliberately disobey God, but, but what I'll do um, is know that he ignores it if I plan to sacrifice or, or do a good deed or, or after I blow it, I'll spend extra time in prayer or give money, whatever. To do that, Samuel says, that's just foolish. And the same could be said of, I'll make up for it by going to church or being involved in some kind of ministry or reading my Bible. Um, John Ortberg points out, to do something that looks and sounds spiritual, but to withhold from God a heart that's tender toward love and trust is to be fundamentally unsound. And that's what Saul has become here, unsound. But every time I read through this story, I remember this is not just a story about Saul. It's a story about me. It can be a story about you. 
And so what I want to challenge all of us, myself included, to think about in the remaining part of this message is if there is some subtle area in your story, in your life that's going on, today's a wonderful invitation um, to stop, to not let it go on. Like the first step to getting free and, and letting it go is to name it, to admit it, to repent of it. Because when we don't, when we don't do that, a hard heart sets in so quickly. And a question I'd want us to think about um, and maybe take with you this week is, is this. Are there any subtle areas in my life where I'm withholding obedience from God? Just to hang on to that question and examine. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. See, what happens in Saul's story is he's like, nah, I'm not going to bother with all of that. And he just tries cutting deals with God. But what he's going to learn is that you can't manipulate God. Because our hearts just grow hard. And you can't manipulate God if we're the king, not if we're the leader, not if even if we're in charge. And in Saul's story, it starts him on this decline. Soon after this part of the story, God rejects Saul as king, and Saul's heart becomes hard. He learns to live with the fact that there's not much closeness between him and God anymore. He just accepts it and hardens his heart. And I know that so often that's what we do, right? We ignore something. We pretend it's okay. We want to shut out anything that would prompt us to make a change or move actually towards freedom and trust that by saying no to the stuff that God calls us to say no to, we'd actually find freedom in it, freedom from it. Because when we don't move toward that freedom, um, that process of hardening our hearts can set in. Let's look now at 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, to another story. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you'll feel better. And so Paul says, you know, fine, go for it, go for it, do it. They find David, actually, verse 21 now, says, David came to Saul, entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, that's David's father, saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I'm pleased with him. And whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and he would play, and relief would come to Saul. He'd feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Is this kind of a troubling text for anybody else, this story? Like, is this just like, whoa, I mean, I wish we had time to really get into it. I used to kind of dismiss some of it because, you know, it's Old Testament, and after Jesus came, he put his spirit in us, so we don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. And, and by the way, I believe that's true, right? Um, this is not something we have to fear that God's going to send an evil spirit on us. Uh, if you are someone that's a follower of Jesus, um, you follow Jesus, you love God, God doesn't send us evil spirits. But still, this passage is tough for me to swallow, especially where it says the spirit had departed from Saul. And here's what I think, and this is what I've come to on that part, the spirit had departed, God's spirit had departed from Saul. It wasn't because God was, you know, ticked or, or fickle. See, Saul had already made it clear up to this point, he didn't want God in his life. Like, he didn't want God in his life. So the Spirit of God will depart when we don't want him in our life. He doesn't just 
stay in there. And then the other part that's really troubling, it says God sent an evil spirit. And I'm like, well, what does that mean, right? And there are several ideas about this. Some people say it means that, that, that God sent an evil spirit, a demon, to oppress Saul from the outside. Others say God caused uh, Saul to become demon-possessed. Um, I'm not sure about either of those. The one that makes sense to me, um, just from looking at the preponderance of Scripture and knowing the character of God all through the Bible, um, has to do with this. Evil, the word evil here in this can be translated a distressing spirit or a troubling spirit. So God sent a distressing spirit. God sent a troubling spirit. And so I think that makes sense that God maybe sent or allowed or even caused Saul to experience this deep pain. And he did that in hopes that, that Saul will still, even after all his hard-heartedness, that he'll still repent, that he'll turn back to God like distress and trouble, but he's using it to call Saul back to him. But whatever else is going on, it's clear. Like Saul's going through a collapse here. He suffers from violent mood swings, paranoia, massive anger. And that often happens when we are disconnected from God, when we're not living consistently with the way God wired us as children created in his image. So, so Saul's losing his center but he discovers that when David plays his harp, he's soothed and he feels better. Now, this tells us something about David. It tells us something about David's heart for God and maybe the anointing or presence of God on his life. Um, it tells us something about his skill as a musician, right? Any musicians out here? Played an instrument before? Right? I've played drums for years, but I've never had someone say to me as a drummer, hey, Doug, can you come play your drum kit to soothe my spirit, right? Weird. <laughs> It's not fair. It's not fair. <clears throat> but verse 23 here says, Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play, and then relief would come to Saul, and he'd feel better. So maybe I'm wondering here if Saul was using this to avoid facing his deeper issues. Maybe he was using the music to medicate his pain, to get relief from feeling bad. And by the way, while music is great and offers us temporary relief at time. Probably what Saul really needed was to do some soul work, to examine his heart, to repent of his sin, to own up to his hardened heart and his distance from God, which was what was creating all the pain in the first place. See, Saul needed to repent, but he settled for relief. And people, we often do that, don't we? And I wonder if maybe in the room today, some of us are going through some spiritual pain because there's something wrong between you and God. Um, and I wonder for some of us, maybe we've even learned to tolerate the distance like Saul did, tolerate that distance between us and God. Because it's distance that God doesn't want, right? God pursues you. He longs to be close to you. And maybe it's understandable, like life's been beating you down, you've been maybe living in a cave-like experience like we've looked at the last couple weeks, um, and you're just looking for relief to feel better. So when the pain increases a little more, we want to get distracted like Saul, like we work harder, or, or we watch TV, or we take a drink, or we buy something, or we hit the internet, or we turn on some music, or we do whatever we need to do to feel better. Instead of repentance, it's real easy for us to medicate. And I wonder if we have the, quest, the, the courage to ask ourselves this question this morning. God, how are things really between you and me? How are things? 
Like, will we have the courage to do what Saul did not? And maybe take some time and spend it alone or with a trusted friend and talk about what's troubling our hearts and then move back towards an honest relationship with God. See, because Saul, he started well, right? Then he started excusing disobedience. He learned to tolerate a hard heart. He got used to it. And then he just tried to distract himself. He, he went looking for relief instead of facing the truth. And then he goes after David with a vengeance, which we've already looked at in this series. So let's skip ahead to the end of his life. First Samuel 28. Uh, now Samuel was dead. All of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his hometown. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came up and set up camp, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or the prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Ender, they said. So Saul disguised himself. Because, by the way, he's the one that had outlawed the, the mediums in the first place. And so he goes to this woman, to the witch of Ender. Now, initially, interesting, Saul had asked God to give him direction. He asked God, what do I do? But we need to understand that Saul wasn't really interested in God's will for his life because that would involve repentance and facing the truth of his hard heart. He just wanted to know, God, what will make me successful in battle, right? That's all he wanted to know. He didn't really want to know God's will. He wanted insider information so he could win. Um, Anybody ever remember the game show, Let's Make a Deal, right? That old one right there? I think it's back on TV. I think we actually saw it. Um, But there was always this big prize of the day. It was either behind door number one or door number two or door number three, right? So just like that game, Saul just wanted to know which, which door is the big prize behind? How can I be a success? Like, let's make a deal, God. And so, of course, God is silent as God will always be for the kind of person who will misuse the information God might give. And Saul wasn't living the kind of life that would enable it for, for, to make any sense for God to speak to him. So then Saul, the same king who outlawed the occult, rightly, he, has, he goes and disguises himself to use the occult. Like, if he can't get ins- insider information out of God, he'll go to the witch of Ender. It doesn't matter. So he goes to her, and he says, hey, call up Samuel, and she does. Now, people sometimes wonder what this whole story says about the afterlife, but that's not what the writer's interested at all. This is about Saul and God. So... Saul sees Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, come up, and Saul bows to Samuel, and it turns out that Samuel, who had been a feisty prophet during his life, he's not been mellowed in death at all, right? (laughs) So he pronounces God's judgment on Saul's life and tells him, the army will fall to the Philistines, the kingdom will be torn away from you and given to David, and you, Saul, and your sons will die. And this ends 42 years of Saul's decline. Verse 20, we read immediately, Saul falls to the ground. His strength is gone. He is finished. His courage, his hope, his vision, compassion, his humanity, gone. They're all gone. And this man who had been chosen by God, among whom there was no one else in the rest of the land, he'd been anointed and acclaimed. He'd been so full of hope and gifts and dreams. Now he's desperate. He's a fear-filled, half-crazed wreck. And there's nobody there to comfort him except for for some outlawed fortune teller witch. 
So he gets up, he leaves this place to fight the Philistines, knows it's going to be his last fight. And two chapters later, our final glimpse of Saul comes where Saul, a defeated man, falls on his own sword and dies at his own hand. Worship team, will you come up? What an encouraging story. Isn't that good? You love that one? Isn't that fun? I love dodging that tough stuff, right? Listen, there's a couple things I think we can learn from this story. Um, it's a tragic story. It began again. Life, promise, potential, but ended like this. And two things that occurred to Heidi and I as we talked about it yesterday. And the first is this. It really is important to be obedient. Not because we're trying to earn something from God. Because disobedience results in hard-heartedness. It impacts you and all those that you influence. Disobedience short-circuits the, the good things that God implan- has planned and intended for you. Because when we disobey God and don't go that way, we choose our own way, and he lets us go. And the second thing that we noticed was that jealousy and envy will drive you mad, like he had toward David. It will ruin your life. It will harden your heart. So with disobedience or jealousy or envy, don't let that stuff, don't let it take root, don't let it grow. This is where we confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. For us to have a heart posture that says, as we read earlier, search me, O God. That takes humility. Search me, God, and know me. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in your way. So the question that I think that we can take as we learn from this tragic story is this. Will we this week have the courage to do what Saul did not do? Will we ask God this question? God, how are things between you and me, really? And then be willing to repent and move back towards an open, obedient, soft heart toward God. And see, the good news is this, it's never too late. And even as we sing this closing song, um, this is an opportunity for us to do that, to return to that heart of God. Even in this moment, it's just one turn, one ask, and he opens his arms and welcomes you back. So as we sing this song, maybe it's a prayer. It's an invitation for sure, but maybe this is the prayer some of us need to focus in on.